Hello, and welcome again to Research Chatter, a podcast sponsored by the Strategic Management Society. I'm your co-host, Ronnie Chatterjee from Duke University in North Carolina, and I am joined by Charlie Williams from Bocconi University in Milan. And here we are together in person again in Berlin for our eighth episode. It's great to get out of the conference hotel for a minute, and it's great to be here in person with you, Ronnie. Again, it's so much more fun to do these when we're we're in the same location. But at the conference, we're, we're so lucky to get to see all our friends and colleagues. As always, people have been pulling us aside and mentioning that they're listening to the podcast. So we love that. We're so happy that you all uh, have found it useful. Please, if you are listening, subscribe in iTunes and rate it on iTunes. That would be um, that would be great for us. Yeah, and thank you for the kind feedback. We'll uh, keep up doing research chatter. We welcome all of your suggestions. The purpose of research chatter has been from the very beginning to highlight big ideas from business school professors from all around the world. In each episode, we'll focus on one topic where business school researchers are uncovering new insights and try to translate the findings into ideas that you, our listeners, can take to work in the real world or discuss it with your students, as we're hearing from many of you at SMS, if you teach this stuff like we do. As always, we'd love the feedback, uh, our listeners, uh, from the listeners on the topics that we're discussing. Suggestions for future episodes are also really welcome, or just comments on what we can do better uh, and where and when you find Research Chatter most useful. I talked to one person today who said they listen to Research Chatter when they're cleaning data. So that, yeah. that, that sounded like a great use case to me. That's so hopefully, excellent. to That's all the excellent. empirical researchers out there, clean your data with Research Chatter. <laughs> uh, and we want theorists too, though, so I'll get to you later. <laughs> so today's episode is based uh, on a topic that really came up in one of our previous I Wonder segments, Charlie. Uh, it was one that might be called uh, the new urbanization uh, of the United States of America. And this is something that might be happening uh, in other parts of the world, too. So we have a set of really interesting papers on urban development and the growth of cities that each provide, I think, what we believe to be an interesting window into one of the most important changes in our economy, our demographics, and uh, the way we live and work, and how that's changing um, not just Americans' lives, but people all around the world. Yeah, so... the. Just a bit of a departure for us in the sense that this is not strategy research per se. It's social science about the new urban revival in America. So that's, in fact, the the title of the first paper we're looking at by Couture and Hanbury, The Urban Revival in America, 2000 to 2010. And here are social scientists who are tracking this trend that we're all living, which is so interesting that people of the sort of uh, what age group should we say? Sort of young er, young professionals, there's a big trend towards living in city centers. And we see it. We know our friends are this way. We know academics are this way. And here's to, to researchers who've really managed to track and identify this phenomenon. So uh, great, interesting phenomenon. It's an open question. What does this mean for strategy? But clearly, a trend this big is going to have some impact. So we're, we're bringing it here partly just to think about what does this mean for businesses, strategy? And entrepreneurship. Yeah, you know, Charlie, I think in my own life, I've seen just the preferences of people in my cohort change so much, at least change from what I think our parents' generation uh, were. And that is the preference to live in downtown city centers as opposed to uh, McMansions in the suburbs or, or other kinds of living units out there. And the notion being that you could be close to the coffee shop or, uh, you know, the tattoo parlor, the craft brewery, the grocery store, whatever it is. And uh, some of the issues that prevented people from living in cities before or led them to live elsewhere are just just seem to be less important, or they've changed, for example. And I thought that was really interesting. But with what Couture and Hanbury have done in their paper, and these are two uh, economists who are in business schools. Uh, Hanbury is at the Wharton School, and Couture is at the Haas School of Business, my alma mater. Um, and they have a preliminary paper, I should say. So they might be updated later on. We want 
to give the authors, of course, the benefit of the doubt on that. But it's, it's a really provocative paper in the sense that they document this trend between 2000 and 2010 of people moving to cities. And not just anybody, right? But young, uh, educated professionals moving to downtown city centers. And I thought, you know, Charlie, you and I lived in Durham, North Carolina together for about five years, and we saw that happening in Durham as well. And I thought, you know, there'd be an interesting link to strategy in terms of thinking about where firms locate, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So these trends are so interesting. And I heard even in the five years since I left Durham, it sounds like Durham Center has become a more and more kind of culturally vibrant place that you'd really, really want to be. Which is such a difference than, say, 15 years ago. The whole story about that part of the country was this is the new massive suburb. It stretches from Atlanta to Raleigh-Durham that never is completely urban and it's never completely rural. It's a, a sort of mid-density. But but now the, the city centers in Charlotte, in Durham, and other places really are revitalizing. I couldn't help to, uh, but kind of take a quick look for European statistics on this as well. There's nothing nearly as detailed that I that I found quickly looking around as this paper. But I was actually surprised because moving to Italy, I I think of Italy as actually a more urban culture. Culturally, they really value urban places. If you think about the path up in politics, it actually goes through mayor much more than it does in the U.S., for instance. Mm -hmm. So Renzi, who's the current prime minister, he was a mayor of Florence. New elections, we had new mayors in Rome and Turin from this upstart party, the five-star party. They, you know, these are some of the most important political positions in the uh, country. And yet, I found most of Europe is actually below the U.S. in urbanization. The the trend data isn't quite as up to date as this, but um, say up to 2005, some were still becoming a little less urban. But but Italy had had a down period and then was on a steep trajectory up. So in particular, Italy looked like it's it was headed into a very similar real growth in uh, in preference for urbanists. And I definitely at Bocconi where I work, there's a, I've moved out of the city center and people just thought I was nuts. It's <laughs> <laughs> definitely a strong preference that way. Yeah, you know, Charlie, it's so interesting that you bring that data to bear because as an outsider, as an American, I do think of, of, of Europe as having so much of a more urban culture. Yeah. And the statistics are very surprising to me um, yeah. that sort of on average, Europe is, is less urban than the United States of America. One other, one other key contrast or interesting contrast was of the urbanized, it's more spread among cities of different sizes. So it's not as concentrated in cities over a million. If you count cities over 750,000, there's still, it's more spread in the than in the U.S. also. It's so interesting. And, you know, one of the cool points that uh, Couture and Hanbury make is that, you know, America as a whole is still getting more suburban in terms of aggregate numbers. So there's more people moving out to the suburbs. What is really sort of documented in their paper is this dramatically large increase between 2000 and 2010 in the number of highly educated young people who are living in downtowns, in the downtown business districts. And I think that's interesting. The other point you made, Charlie, about different kinds of cities also comes out in their paper. You know, if you told me that New York and San Francisco mm -hmm. and LA mm -hmm. were getting uh, more urban yeah. and we were seeing more people move into the city center and stay there, I would say, yeah, sure. I see that with my own eyes. Sure. But we're talking Durham and Cleveland and Dayton and Detroit and they places- cover top 50, don't Top they? 50 all over the country, you've seen this trend in some form or fashion. And that's been really surprising to see that it's something that's not just in the major metros in the U.S., but but all the way across the top 50. And if you look at this, the number they have is the number of 25 to 44-year-old college grads is growing three times faster in urban areas of the U.S. than in the suburbs. And that's a big reversal from what we saw between 1970 that and 2000 is. in the U.S., the big question, though, in this paper, and I think this is where it's going to really link to strategy scholars potentially, is 
why are we seeing that urbanization? That's right. That's right. So here's such a nice model of an you know empirically driven paper. Here's this big phenomenon. One, we just need to confirm that it's out there. Very, very careful work just to describe the phenomenon. Where is it concentrated? But then the se- the back half or the second part of the paper really just turns to this why and and just uses a, kind of addresses a couple of the big explanations that have been put out there, both by economists, demographers, and and in the popular press. So the some of the alternatives they look at are that, one, people are delaying having a family later, and having kids later means cities are just more attractive. Some, uh, many have observed that crime rates in urban areas have really dropped, and so given that crime rates dropped, maybe people move to these suburbs. There's, there's a bit of an argument, I'm less familiar with this one, so I didn't completely absorb it, I have to say, but that, that actually mortgage credit availability, especially after the crisis when, when mortgage credit dried up for a while, that that might have driven the urbanization. And then finally, kind of similar to some of the agglomeration work and strategy we've talked about, maybe it's a location of jobs. Maybe the, you know, the businesses in, in central urban areas are really growing, and it's simply because of that that the young, educated people have to, uh, have to follow them. So they, they put together a really broad, interesting data set. So they match up census, American Community Survey, some other, other databases, NETS, and a few others to, to be able to tease out some of these stories. They have then, as you might imagine, an instrumental variable approach to, uh, to try to understand which of these are really causing it. And one thing they point out, which again, I don't know because I'm not a, a demographer, that most of these location choice studies have been done on the cross-section. So they, they tend to have really, really rich data about one point in time and where everyone lives, and then they try to estimate a model. So at least they have two points in time, and they say, they point out uh, accurately that this washes out a lot of the unobserved features of different locations kind of wash out over those two so, that, so they can identify the model much more closely. But anyway, at the end of very rich. It's like a 60-page paper, working 65, paper. 65, 65. <laughs> so, and then you you say that they say they might add to it, like, uh, like good Lord, or, you know, who's going to publish? Is it going to be a book, not a journal article? Um, but what they, what they, well, what did you say? What do they come yeah, down? Sure, what do no. they end up uh, attributing is, I mean, to? and again, we recommend this paper and the others we're talking about today in the sense it's a great piece of work, really interesting to see where it's going to go. But Couture and Hanbury find that it's really documented that it's probably more about the changing tastes for amenities that's really explaining this. So, you know, it's not that people are maybe starting their households and their, their families a little later, but they don't find that as a convincing explanation. I mean, one thing you could say Those... is look, looking at 35 to 44 year olds who are more likely to have kids and seeing the same patterns, you know, the crime they rate- still don't move to the suburbs with that age cohort doesn't head to the suburbs just because they had a kid. It isn't that really interesting, different. right? Yes, I know so many is. people who are having their kids now and they live in urban areas and that big decision's coming and like maybe a decade or two ago it might have been obvious to a lot of them to move to the suburbs but now it's changing and yeah, I think, you know, that's yeah. probably what these these guys might be picking up in the 2000-2010 period. The crime rates, it's complicated because as you get more people moving to the downtowns, that also itself has an impact on crime but they don't find that that is the explanation why people are moving in the first place. Yeah. What Couture and Hanbury seem to find in this, in this first preliminary draft is that people are changing their tastes for amenities, both in the kinds of amenities they want and perhaps the proximity, as we're going to talk about, to amenities as well. And I started to think, I don't know, Charlie, if if you had this, but I immediately started to think about the work on uh, categories and audiences. As audience forms their preferences about different categories in organizational theory, 
how do those audiences change their, you know, taste or yes. what they like, not, not yeah. necessarily their preferences. And what kind of sociological or economic explanations lead people to change their taste for these particular amenities? So being located next to, you know, entertainment or retail or other people who are like you. Um, and, and, and if that's causing it, how did these things happen? I mean, the most exciting part of the result, I think, is that the authors sort of state that the traditional determinants of location choice in those static uh, papers you talked about really are things like, you know, the availability of housing, jobs, schooling. They do not, those same variables do not explain what we're calling the new urbanization. So this is something new. And uh, and a question is, you know, it, do we need new techniques or new variables or, or, or new kinds of scholars to come approach and figure this out? Um, the second paper we read is sort of, I think, um, a way to think about this. The second paper is a working paper, another one by Edlund, uh, Machado, and Savachi, called Bright Minds, Big Rents, Gentrification, and the Rising Return to Skills. This explanation, if you think about it, putting it together with the first paper, the, these authors argue that urbanization that we're talking about has been a key, key you know, driven mostly by higher educated and higher income people working more and having less time for leisure. Yeah. So, Charlie, the proximity so, to amenities becomes more important, cutting down yeah, on community so, and things like that. What do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, it is really interesting, and it may be a very important piece to bring into the explanation, because for the, the first one, you really end up thinking, oh, so these people just need bars and and uh, and Iranian movies to, to get out to? So they, they look like, uh, you know, well, it looks like it's really driven by leisure choices and a preference for leisure over work. Here, the story becomes more complex in the sense of, yes, they want those things, but living further out in the suburbs and things like that takes time away from being able to um, to absorb those things or to get to those things. And so it actually may be about this work-life balance that the modern jobs for especially educated knowledge workers leave less time. And so you need, if you're going to do other things in your life, you need to be right in the center. This is right. I mean, you know, it's different an, sort of story. It's a different story. I think it's an interesting empirical fact. Uh, Eric Hurst, I think, and co-authors have documented this in other work with the American Time Use Survey that, you know, people, especially highly uh, educated and high income people are actually spending less time on leisure according to the traditional measures. And, you know, this paper takes that and says, well, less time on leisure means you want to be closer to that stuff. And commuting is probably one of the lowest value activities. So we want to all cut that out. And so what Ed and her co-authors are doing here is saying this could be one reason uh, to see those urbanization trends that Couture and Hanbury have documented. Yeah, All this yeah. is super interesting, Charlie. So you sort of laid the it groundwork is. for it. You know, so, and I'm going to come a little from left field with this, this one thing, because I just think it's worth pulling in, in here. The, the changing leisure and or maybe consumption and amenities preferences really may be a big part of the social changes that are going on right now. And I'll just mention the Chicago Booth graduation speech that actually an economist did that just recently got passed around on, on the net and on Twitter a lot. He talked about the leisure preferences of young, not college-educated men and the fact that, one, work rates have really dropped, and this has been associated with a lot of kind of the discontent in that area. But in fact, it turns out that most of the drop is accounted for by the amount of time spent gaming, and uh, which is really interesting. So online gaming and, and video gaming really takes that up. And But one of the things he points out is if you look at 
um, the happiness scores of uh, of the same cohort of men 20 years ago, they're actually more happy today. Living at home, not really working as much, but playing uh, playing video games. They're, they they do seem to have optimized for their own uh, their own preferences at that point. It's so. very interesting. I take I gotta take a look at that speech too. Maybe yeah, we'll retweet really it on Twitter really as well. And as a guy who played a lot of video games growing up, but doesn't play any now, I can tell you I'm a lot less happy playing less video games. So you're right on this, Charlie. My 13 year old may be living living <laughs> living the, the dream. Tell him he's never gonna be happier than he is now. Oh, God. And Charlie, you know, of course, given that this is research chatter and we're thinking about firm strategy, okay, now let's take these these two great papers and try to connect them a little bit to what it might mean for firm strategy. Because, you know, to my mind, we haven't really brought in these trends uh, in urbanization into our current research. So let me throw out a few threads and yeah, and see what you think. And, yep. and hopefully the audience can, can respond as well. So, you know, where firms locate? Obviously, we have a great tradition. Uh, Juan Alcacer and Wilbur Chung are among many who've done work in terms of firms' uh, location. But now I see a lot of software companies, like a company like Red Hat, for example, moving from maybe a suburban office park to downtown Raleigh. Um, isn't that a strategic decision that would be in response to these new urbanization trends that Couture and Hanbury, Edlin, and her co-authors document? Absolutely. And, it, and not only that, it speaks to the, the discussion we had uh, two podcasts about when we talked about Steve Klepper's experimental capitalism, he really got into the debate about agglomeration. There's been this one side you mentioned, uh, Juan Alcather, Wilbur Chung, and, and many, many others, Miles Shaver, thinking about the location advantages that come from businesses. You you get more businesses. So you could think that this uh, uh, move to cities would be because there's just all these competitive effects that are making the businesses more successful, and so they're growing there. But this, the 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 it looks more like the workers going there is driving firms to to locate. So there's this long tradition of say firms being having corporate headquarters in you know somewhat out of the way places like Walmart in Arkansas and Whirlpool in Western Michigan and Baxter Pharmaceuticals in rural Illinois, IBM in in Europe. Bertelsmann is famous for being in small town Germany. And yet these firms, and I know from talking to some of them, they're struggling to get the, say, young MBAs. They want to be coming into the organization. They don't want to go to those places now. And it is a big, big challenge for them. But they may be going to the city centers, chasing the workers. It's not that like some competitive dynamic is driving them. And this looks in some ways like the revenge of Steve Clever. We talked about his entrepreneurship story where he says, no, it's not all these other spillover effects. It's just these people were already in these places. Their kids were in school. They weren't going to move. That's where they founded it. This sounds somewhat simple, similar. It, it's so interesting, Charlie. And just to depart from what, what you were saying here, or, or to build on that, I should say, I mean, you know, how does a Walmart solve that issue? And is it an interesting thing for strategy scholars? So one thing I know is when they yeah. hire students out of Duke, um, they I think they have a, a rotation you can do through San Francisco. As, as you know, Walmart has been trying to build up a big e-commerce uh, platform. Yeah. They recently made an acquisition of Jet uh, in, in, to yeah. do that. But, you know, obviously going to Bentonville versus San Francisco is just a different life decision. And for a lot of 27 to 28-year-olds, it may be more desirable to go to San Francisco, right? And so Walmart thinking about that is very interesting. Now, should strategy scholars care whether Walmart has operations in San Francisco or not? Should should they care whether Red Hat is in Raleigh or in, or sorry, suburban Raleigh or in downtown Raleigh? How should we, I mean, what, what does it matter? I mean, I, I, one thing I'd like to know is if we're going to look at these decisions, where do you think it fits into the inquiry that a strategy scholar might be looking at? Yes. Well, so that, I mean, that would be, I, I believe that someone's done a study in it, but I can't pull it up right off the top of my head right now on 
changing the location of your corporate headquarters. And so, I mean, that seems like exactly what you say is the motivation for that. Like, does this have any effect when Boeing moves from Seattle to Chicago? Why? What drives it? And does it have any effect on the company? It, it, it seems to me it pushes into really deep organizational issues also about how do you get the most out of people who are distributed? And so less on the strategy side, but really deep in management and organization. And even like your colleague, Jonathan Cummings, our former kind of joint colleague, he, he's been studying this using kind of IT data for a long time. How do you manage these distributed teams? So if you're, if you're Google on the West Coast, but if you absolutely need to have some of your researchers are going to be in Manhattan, how are you going to make sure you're still leveraging the most from those? Those are going to be really key questions. And there's been talk of the death of distance for quite some time. There's been a lot of pushback on that. No, it really makes a difference to be co-located, to be in the right locations um, for, for kind of business energy, all this agglomeration discussion. The, I mean, I think those same deep issues that have been discussed in strategy are, are going to come up with these these same uh, trends that firms are struggling with now. It, you know, it's interesting, Charlie. I think the other great thing about this data, too, that uh, Couture and Hanbury have especially is it's very fine-grade amenity data. So now we can tell more about the locations of these firms and these studies than just the zip code. We can tell them something about the built environment around them, what amenities are around, what their employees might have some access to. That's a cool source of variation to kind of pull off some of the studies you're talking about, and it's all put together in these kind of data. You know, I think it's also going to have implication on things like commercial rents and, and, and the cost of locating yeah. in particular places. You know, if 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 headquarters are staying in the suburbs, but there's an R&D in the urban location, I also think that's really interesting. I mean, I, I don't know how to necessarily think about that. So whether they move their headquarters or not, and, you know, Miles Shaver's book on Minneapolis as a headquarters is like a really interesting place to start with this. You know, Walmart may have operations all over in these new urban centers uh, and also in their traditional areas in, in, in Bentonville, Arkansas. Even even the social strategies and the social missions may shift. You know, Tony Sue, Tony Shu of Zappos, when he moves in their Vegas. headquarters to Vegas, there's a big big investment in, we want this to be the most vital downtown that it possibly can be. And there was a lot, he did a lot around that. The CEO of uh, Under Armour, I believe, is doing the same thing in Baltimore, I want to ah, say. I, I believe it's Under yeah. Armour. We can correct it later if it's not. Yes, yes, yeah. he is there. He's down in the heart. Th that's the exactly, exactly and, right. Yes, See, I don't even right. need correction. I got my Charlie right here. <laughs> um, the other angle I wanted to highlight, Charlie, you said something really interesting about this, this conversation about the death of distance. And I hear it too. People tell me that the world is flat and you can start a company anywhere. But actually... Everything we've been saying is sort of implying maybe the opposite or, mm. or just something different, which is I'm thinking how this new urbanization might just exacerbate the advantages that industry clusters like San Francisco and New York and Boston already have. And to a lesser extent, places like Austin, Texas and Durham, North Carolina, if these cities are the hotbeds of innovation and entrepreneurship and all the young people want to go there and all the high tech firms are going there, it seems like we're going to see even more wealth and more income generated from the urban centers and less from other places, exacerbating kind of regional inequality in the U.S. And so yeah. that's the other part of the, the death of distance that doesn't swear with what might actually be happening. I see a little bit in the data that that, that makes me worry a little less about that, actually. The fact that it's really, as you said at the beginning, it's not just New York, San Francisco, L.A. It's spread across a whole bunch of different areas. Um, you know, if Durham can participate, if Durham, North Carolina, that's not a really big city. Mm -hmm. It does have a big research university, but it really hasn't been a vibe vibrant place until until fairly recently. So if if it's if this also matches the preference set, it seems to me that there's a lot more room for um 
for these urban advantages to grow up many places. So it, w- it won't be that you have to be in New York. You have to be paying, you know, truly sky high rents that there, if there are many, many different kind of central nodes where this can happen, then I'm less worried about the winner take all. So, and, and it appears that the data in Europe is, is somewhat similar, that it's spread across mid-sized cities as well as really large ones. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and Charlie, I mean, I guess going to that topic, I mean, the third paper we have today is the one by mm. Jorge Guzman and this, Scott Stern. This is a little more of the winner take all story. Yeah, so, so tell, this, tell uh, us what your your impressions were on that. This is the the paper, Where is Silicon Valley? That was yeah. in science. And, uh, you know, what, what? how do you think that fits into the discussion? Yeah, so I, I haven't really integrated this one. It is a little harder to fit in. It's focused on the question of quality entrepreneurship, not just quantity. So most studies, and one came out from a, a nonprofit around Silicon Valley a couple months ago, basically said, entrepreneurship is becoming much more concentrated. They said, you know, I forget, a generation or even 10 or 20 years ago, the, uh, you know, the top half of new firm starts were spread over 200, uh, 200, 300 counties. Now it's down to 120 and like 20 of those account for a huge proportion of the number of new businesses started. So what, what, um, Scott Stern and Jorge Guzman do, they go even much more fine-grained and they go much more focused on measures of what are the really high-quality startups. And those are ones that have patents, that have bothered to incorporate in Delaware, that there's something else about, oh, how they name. And you're a name. You've done a name. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a name what, guy. what is it about naming? Well, actually, they, they use a similar measure to what we use in the paper, what I use with Sharon Bellinzone and Brendan Daly, eponymous naming. Although they, they do use, use that. They, they use do. That. They okay. do. And, and they use those things as quality indicators for, for entrepreneurial ventures. I mean, the cool thing about the study I find, too, is, you know, most people are counting businesses and they're saying, well, there's more self-employed people in yeah. Miami than San Francisco. Yeah. So Miami's more entrepreneurial. What Scott and Jorge do here, which is really smart, is they say, well, no, let's look at quality indicators. And they have a, you know, sort of a, a predictive algorithm that says, you know, what's associated with going public or getting acquired six years down the road. Yeah. And when they have those characteristics, they can then go to the data as it stands and say, well, where are the hotbeds of entrepreneurial quality? And it does sort of support that report you're talking about from the nonprofit on Silicon Valley, which says that they're pretty clustered in terms of where these high quality entrepreneurs and are. And that, you know, 75% of the venture capital is in three states, um, according to the most recent data that I know of, with mm. Boston and New York mm. and San Francisco. So it's interesting to see if this dynamic means that, you know, the rich are going to keep getting richer and, and whether the depth of distance is, is overstated. Yeah. I do like your point, though, Charlie. Coming in, I, I think I was probably more pessimistic, but thinking about how many cities can share uh, in this boom makes me feel a little more optimistic now. And I, I met a student of mine who went to Detroit to go work for uh, Ford, I think it was, and mm. he talked to me about living in downtown Detroit um, and really participating wow. in that's, the recovery. That's different. And, and that's, that's but, different. But he told me, actually, that, you know, two years ago it was cutting edge, and now it's a little bit, um, th- things are, you know, things are on the way up, and there's a lot of kind of, you know, followers uh, going, uh, really? to, yeah, supporting well, the original pioneers. That was really interesting. So, you know, cities all over the country may, may see these kind of benefits. Um, I did think putting all these papers together, you know, about urbanization, the location of firms, I did think the other interesting thing about it was, you know, when you locate in an urban area, in a big building, for example, uh, it's different than when you have an office park. And I wondered if this is going to change the way, or it's already probably having an impact on the way companies organize their offices. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, Ramon Lacuna Torres, one of my, um, you know, colleagues at Duke is looking about how the structure of the office actually affects innovation 
and teamwork. So I think when you're in an urban area, you know, Google, for example, is going to be set up very different from SaaS, a software company that's in suburban North Carolina. And how these companies organize work and what it means to be operating in a higher density area, that can have interesting implications for collaboration within the firm and also spillovers to, to other firms as well. That's, that's uh, fun. That'll be, I'm sure that firms are having some fun playing with that. I'm sure it's expensive. I mean, getting, it may well just be easier and a little, as much as real estate's expensive, a little less expensive to do this when you can, can play with land if you're really in a tight space and trying to be, it demands creativity and innovation, but it probably also does demand resources. So it could well be, this will be, again, a bit of a case of reverse causality. The top companies can go and get the top talent um, and uh, and kind of pull off some of these things in urban centers and uh, and the rest may be chasing a bit for this. So that that side may be, have a bit of a winner-take-all uh, uh, element to it. Yeah. And Charlie, any advice to recruiters of companies that are in areas that are not in these urban centers? I'd love to see, you know, let's suppose that, you know, building a new fancy headquarters in downtown San Francisco or New York is not an option. How do you think about recruiting? You know, who you yeah. go after if you want those top MBAs? What are the kinds of advice we can give people? Well, I do actually think recognizing that investing in your own center, whatever it is, is also needs to be part of how these companies think about, you know, their, their social mission and also their their setting. It makes a big difference. And, you know, even I know there's small examples, but Kodak a while ago was struggling with attracting uh, minority executives to, to Rochester, New York. And one of the problems is there just, there was no one who could cut black hair up there. There was no stylist who would kind of focus on that. So if you want to think about, about young, about diverse, then think about where your region could offer that and how your company might actually add to that or how you might join together with others. Because, uh, People have been tracking. So journalists, Jim Fallows and, and uh, his wife, Deb Fallows, have been doing a series in the Atlantic where they track really small areas that had been, been kind of written off that have managed to revitalize. And again, it's been a couple local businesses come together and really sort of getting spirit up and really starting to kind of get the arts going and get some uh, some pride. And so I do think, you know, if you're not in New York City, that actually a lot of people really love where, where they are and are very really know what's best about it. But investing in that, highlighting it, bringing out, that, that can be part of the strategy. It's a, Charlie, it's a great point to end on. I think the same thing where we talk about these these changing tastes, for example, but there's so many people that have taste for other kinds of things, right? Mm. So even if mm. you know a large number of millennials want to live in these big cities, there's a lot of people who might have different preferences, different tastes. True. You know, millions, right? And yep. the idea you can also focus on recruiting the people who are more likely to uh, to live in your area. Also, think about age. You know, I know a lot of my students, for example, who are older. Maybe they've served in the military uh, for our armed forces uh, in, in some capacity, and they might be have families, for example. They're more interested actually in some of the jobs in places that are in more suburban rural areas sometimes. And so right. that could be an interesting angle too. And obviously they're, they're often really good employees. So I think being smart about recruiting um, can also be something that we can think about with these companies. Yeah. Taking advantage of the outdoors is smart. You know, I moved out of city center Milan. Everyone thinks I'm crazy, but we could find a great international school up on the edge of the Alps. And so it was worth having a long commute for me. And one of the jokes, a friend of mine was just back from meetings in Silicon Valley. And I guess they're joking that mountain biking is the new golf that lots of people meet on, uh, on bikes now to kind of, uh, to do business as well. So Very there, there is a wide range of preferences out yeah, there. Yeah, the, instead of the walking meeting, we have the biking meeting. Yep. This is fantastic. Well, certainly an interesting space to watch um, on urbanization and how it's going to impact strategy. I'm hoping, and I think I'm expecting, we're going to see more academic research from strategy scholars that relate firm strategy decisions to what this new urbanization trends are, are wreaking. Um, are, 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 you know, speaking of new, though, 
we should now turn to our segment called I Wonder, which has been interesting. And that's where we discuss kind of new areas of research uh, or just ideas that we're mulling over. And I, will, I thought I'd go first, Charlie, today. I actually just want to build on the urbanization, but actually go to a different sort of type of organization, which is universities themselves. So we've mm. talked about how the new urbanization um, has really sort of made these cities more attractive places to live for young people. What about the cities or the, the universities that aren't in these major cities? And does it change basically, you know, sort of the calculus and their strategy? So you, saw, so you see a lot of universities. Cornell, for example, is uh, working on a New York City campus on mm, Roosevelt Island. But there's lots of great universities that are not in these major urban centers. Pur- Purdue, for example, in West Lafayette, Indiana, would be another one. And it'd be interesting to see the strategy of these really top, top tier one research universities and how they think about competing with their peers uh, when their peers might be in these really sort of um, innovative and entrepreneurial cities. Um, you know, these universities are not going to move. It's not an option for Cornell or Purdue, I think. And or they're, Michigan. They're, or it's Michigan. Be in Ann Arbor. They're, Illinois they're, and they're in beautiful in places, Chicago, right? And, and, and yeah. we, few, you know, you and I have ties to a few of those places and they're beautiful places. We never want them to move. But then the question is, are they going to have to adjust somehow to to attract a new generation of students? When you think about the remote campuses or the different campuses, are you going to have degree programs there the way that yeah. Cornell is doing? Yeah. Um, is this being international campuses? My own university, Duke, is doing a lot of stuff in China, for example. And it'd be interesting to see how universities who are in cities versus not and major metros versus not are going to react differently to these trends. And of course, the management of these external campuses is going to make the whole university very different. You know, when you yeah. think about Cornell, um, it does seem like a really smart move to have this uh, this operation in New York City, but it certainly changed some things in terms of the Ithaca, you know, sort of culture. And, you know, when you think about faculty who are a pretty difficult asset to kind of just move around, uh, you know, how many are going to drive down there to New York? Are they going to be commuting? Yeah. And, and I think faculty in general, we're used to sort of a, a very predictable routine. And it's, it's harder probably to reallocate assets and capabilities inside a university with tenured faculty than it might be in other kinds of organizations where you can set up a San Francisco yeah. office. And so it'd be really exciting to see as these universities, really top ones, um, grapple with the opportunities and challenges of the new urbanization. Well, I just will name one example in our field uh, that has managed to pull this off. So INSEAD yes. was in, is in Fontainebleau, which is which is reasonably far outside of Paris, but you know one of the most successful business schools in Europe opened up a campus in urban Singapore. I mean, urban Singapore is a hundred percent urbanization country because it just is a city. But they and people were really wondering when they first did it if they could pull it off. But all the reports are those two campuses. For the students, students go both the MBAs and the PhD students go back and forth between the, camp- the campuses. The faculty are mostly situated in one or the other, but they, you know, they have lots of video hookups. They do go back and forth between the two. So now they're light. So compared to a big, you know, broad research university, they are just a business school. You're doing it when you're uh, Michigan or Cornell. It is uh, it is something else to pull off, but the, I'm sure there's a lot to be learned from. Well, and and it's that. a great point, Charlie. And you know, if it makes us feel better, the dean of the Cornell College of Business is a former NCAD professor, so I'm no sure way. he'll have yeah. that kind of expertise to bring to the the Cornell's New York mission. So that sounds great. Well, that's a great. One. I wonder. Uh, I wonder too. So mine, I'm right in the the heat of teaching strategy execution right now. Kind of my intensive. Uh, MBA elective. And so that's had me thinking about execution issues. And so having taught uh, taught strategic planning this week, I couldn't help thinking this is this is a little bit my you know research being I should be in the classroom pitching what we know from research. But but honestly, I'm in the classroom talking about the fact that so much of our planning processes suffer because there's such a human tendency to drive out uncertainty that uh, that it's very hard to keep awareness of uncertainty in the 
in the planning process. There's, you know, such a drive. And if you've ever worked with companies, I know you have, you find there's such a drive towards numbers quickly because they're going to determine so much of you what you do in the short term. So, but I'd like to see, I wonder what kind of research has been done on this. So the concept of uncertainty avoidance is out there because of international measures where different countries vary on this. And I know there's some evidence on this in decision sciences, but I'm not sure I've seen it applied specifically to strategic planning. And I do think that some of our popular solutions that we suggest to uh, to executives and to students as they come through really are about how do you make sure you embrace the right questions in the process and, and maintain some openness to them and, and really search for solutions. So I'd, I'd like to see, I think there's really room to do some lab testing on this. And I'd be, I really wonder if we can understand much better how groups tackle uncertainty to improve our strategic planning. It, it's so interesting, Charlie. I, I wonder too, you know, I think about when I run a meeting or I'm part of a group, you know, you often want to let the people know around the table that you have a plan and it's yes. consistent and there's going to be deadlines. So reassuring. It's, it's very reassuring. And people actually see that in some ways as a sign of professionalism. That's right. And, and I, I was talking to a scholar uh, yesterday and he said when he runs meetings, sometimes he doesn't have an agenda because uh, for some of the reasons you talked about, to allow a little bit more creativity maybe, for example, and you know increase the uncertainty mm. for that reason. But you know people are very uncomfortable with that, and yeah. so when when you when it you can be when, a sign, it's taken as a sign of unprepared. When you start a process, I think it's really important to also think about the expectations of the audience because mm. I know when I go into a meeting and I, I see that it's not very organized, I say, well, this is not a good use of my time. Yes. On the other hand, if I if you're trying to organize a creative process, maybe I should be looking for different signals, and, and I, I that's something I'm going to wonder about going yeah. forward. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of our eighth edition of Research Chatter. If you liked it and you want to hear more, please subcri subscribe in iTunes. Please rate it. If you're liking it, rate us and, and uh, uh, put reviews in and spread the word. We always want to get word out to people who might find this useful. Our online home is at strategicmanagementsociety.wordpress.com. There you can find links to all the papers we discuss, plus our contact info, Twitter accounts, you name it. Fantastic. Yeah. And do let us know what you think uh, on the ratings on iTunes, in the comments on Twitter, at the Society's Facebook page. Uh, let us know if you have new topics or papers for us to cover. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to see people at the upcoming conferences. For now, thanks for listening and see you next time.